This is C-SPAN's First Ladies in Their Own Words podcast, listening to the voices of eight modern First Ladies. In this episode, you'll hear from the 38th First Lady of the United States, Betty Ford. Born in 1918 in Chicago, Elizabeth Bloomer married then-congressional candidate Gerald Ford in 1948. Together, they raised four children as Mr. Ford rose to prominence in Washington. President Ford, who came to office in the wake of President Nixon's Watergate resignation, lost the 1976 presidential election to Jimmy Carter. Next, you'll hear his concession statement. The First Lady stepped in for the defeated president, who was hoarse from campaigning. It's um, perfectly obvious that um, my voice isn't up to par, and I shouldn't be making very many comments, and I won't. But I did uh, on Betty, Mike, Jack, Steve, Susan, and Gail come down with me and to uh, listen while uh, Betty read a statement that um, I have sent to Governor Carter. Let me call on the... uh, a real spokesman for the family. Betty? The president asked me to tell you that he telephoned President-elect Carter a short time ago and congratulated him on his victory. The president also wants to thank all those thousands of people who worked so hard on his behalf and the millions who supported him with their votes. It's been the greatest honor of my husband's life to have served his fellow Americans during two of the most difficult years in our history. The president urges all Americans to join him in giving your united support to President-elect Carter as he prepares to assume his new responsibilities. That was Betty Ford, speaking in the straightforward manner to which Americans became accustomed in the nearly two and a half years she lived in the White House. The concession statement she delivered on behalf of a horse President Gerald Ford ending the 1976 campaign was not the end of her own political life. She continued her work to improve the lives of those facing breast cancer and substance abuse, focusing a spotlight on once taboo topics. She built a friendship and policy partnership with the woman who followed her into the White House, Rosalind Carter, an advocate for the mentally ill. And she revealed that she'd lobbied her husband to name a woman to the Supreme Court and to his 1976 re-election ticket. Betty Ford was fond of saying she was known to have an opinion or two. You'll hear directly from her, featuring footage from C-SPAN's video library. Let's listen to her now in her own words. The Equal Rights Amendment, when ratified, will not be an instant solution to women's problems. It will not alter the fabric of the Constitution or force women away from their families. It will help knock down those restrictions that have locked women in 
to the old stereotypes of behavior and opportunity. It will help, an op help open up more options for women. But it is only a beginning. The debate over ERA has become too emotional because of the fears of some, both men and women, about the changes already taking place in America. In 1975, First Lady Betty Ford underwent a double mastectomy for cancer. Her candor about her surgery and treatment helped bring the discussion of breast cancer into the public sphere. Here in October of 1976, she discusses her experience with cancer. In a few weeks, I will complete my chemotherapy treatments, and that will be another milestone for me. Since that first year, I have not talked much about the difference in my experience with cancer. But at that time, my mastectomy and the discussion about it, I was really pleased to see it because it prompted a large number of women to go and get checkups in their local communities. It made my recuperation easier because I knew that I was helping others. I make this progress report to help cheer up those who have just had an operation for cancer and to encourage them to keep up their good spirit. Part of the battle against cancer is to fight the fear that accompanies the disease. Betty Ford also openly discussed her addiction to drugs and alcohol. She became a lifelong advocate for addiction treatment. Here she is speaking about drug and alcohol's toll at an event in 1994. As many of you probably know, 16 years ago this April, I participated in a treatment program for prescription drugs and alcohol dependence. Today I am a very grateful recovering alcoholic and I know firsthand that treatment does work. Mrs. Ford testified before Congress about substance abuse and the work of the Betty Ford Center, which she and President Ford supported for the rest of their lives. Madam Chairman and members of the committee, good morning and I want to thank you for entertaining me this morning and allowing me to testify. My name is Betty Ford, and I am the co-founder and president of the Betty Ford Center Board of Directors in Rancho Mirage, California. The Betty Ford Center was opened in 1982 as a chemical dependency recovery hospital. It is an 80-bed, freestanding facility providing treatment through inpatient, outpatient, and family programs. We also uh, offer a professional and residence program to help educate doctors, nurses, and other health care providers about the disease of addiction. Since its inception, the goal of the Betty Ford Center has been to provide the highest quality care possible at the most reasonable cost possible. The steps that led to my involvement in the development of an operation of the Betty Ford Center may be known to some of you. If I had not 
found recovery from my own addiction to prescription drugs and to alcohol, I would not have lived to see this day. I would not have lived to see three of my children be married. I would not have experienced the joy of being the grandmother of five wonderful granddaughters. I know that treatment works, that it saves lives, because it saved mine. After my treatment, I saw the need for a facility to provide quality care in my home community. I worked toward the creation of the Betty Ford Center because of my belief in the worthiness and importance of treatment and because of my desire that appropriate, affordable treatment be more widely available. When we opened the Betty Ford Center in 1982, it was a very different time. Through my own interviews and through word of mouth, people heard about the center. They knew of our reputation for excellence and value, and they turned to us for help. For a long, long time, the Betty Ford Center operated at 100% capacity with a waiting list, which sometimes grew to as many as 100. Reimbursement for our services was not a problem. Most insurers and other payers found our charge for treatment reasonable and far below what they were used to paying. And most importantly, at that time there was an awakening of an awareness about the crisis of addiction this nation was facing. We were beginning to understand that people with an addiction needed help in combating their disease. Treatment was seen as an appropriate and necessary response. Business and industry were on record as favoring treatment of chemically dependent employees, not merely for humanitarian reasons, but because it made good business sense. Both public and private treatment sources were expanding in hopes of meeting at least a portion of the enormous and growing demand for services. Alcoholism and drug dependency were a chronic disease of tremendous magnitude. Prevention and treatment were the very best primary response. Characterizing our number of public health problem, number one public health problem, as a war on drugs has allowed a return to the strictive punitive approach to dealing with people who are, in fact, sick. The focus has been shifted to cocaine and crack to the extent of ignoring alcohol, the number one drug of addiction of this country. We are a nation which has historically responded to help the sick and the suffering. In the case of alcoholism and drug dependency, we need to respond not so much from a sense of compassion and decency as from economic and common sense. I've come here today to seek help and guidance and, most of all, leadership from the United States Congress in barely considering this national emergency and implementing, implementing appropriate solutions. And I hope the swiftness of your actions can match the magnitude of the crisis. In 1994, Betty Ford joined another former First Lady, Rosalind Carter, at the National Press Club to discuss mental health and substance abuse, which were important causes for both women. Uh, yes, this is a question for uh, Mrs. Carter and Mrs. Ford. Uh, you didn't talk specifically about personal abuse, 
helpful proposal, which limits the number of days and conditions of the tools that you're talking about. Do you support the President's bill or would you like to see the Well, there are a lot of health care proposals, you know, and what um, Mrs. Ford, I she can speak for herself, but what we're trying to do is to be sure that in whatever bill is um, passed by Congress, that mental health and substance abuse benefits are included equally with physical health benefits. I agree um, with Rosalind. This is a policy issue, not a political issue of what bill we support. It's more what the bill contains, and that's what we're talking about. I spoke with Hillary um, very early in the process about uh, including mental health. I worked with Tipper Gore and the working group um, constantly. Um, I think that everybody would like to have mental health benefits included in health care reform. Um, what we want to, to um, make sure of is that they're included equally, that there's no distinction if you're sick, you're sick. And so that's, that, is, um, that is what we're working toward. Yes, um, I too have met with Mrs. Carter, I mean, excuse me, Mrs. Clinton early on, and uh, she very much is supporting the coverage of mental health and substance abuse. taking a very active advocacy role in, in health care, and uh, your successor, Mrs. Clinton, has taken a very active role in crafting the policy and crafting the legislation. Do you have any advice to Mrs. Clinton as she takes on that added role in health care? I think I would tell her to just keep working at it. <laughs> I applaud her efforts and those of Tipper Gore. Um, um, having been a first lady, um, you realize that there is some influence in that position, and I applaud those who take advantage of that. And I would just say ditto. <laughs> You're listening to First Ladies in Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. In 1996, Betty Ford reflected on her efforts to influence her husband on women's policy issues during a Bakersfield, California business conference. This is Ford. <laughs> Um, I think that when my husband was serving as President of the United States, I felt that I could be a sounding board. Um, I had the feeling that as I went about to public functions, I could hear what the people were feeling and hear what they were saying and carry it back to him as a um, what what was out there for him to take in and kind of combine in what he was hearing from his cabinet. Because I think a president is often so protected by those people around him and his cabinet that he doesn't have a really good feel for the common, everyday, mundane, day-to-day -day stuff that is going on outside the walls of the White House and the Oval Office. And that was one thing that I thought I could benefit my husband. I was, of course, very active in the Equal Rights Amendment 
and I did try very hard to influence him on women's issues. And I did a... <clears throat> I, I managed to do a, a pretty good job, but when it came to naming a woman to the Supreme Court, he finally left me in the background and went ahead and chose a man, which was quite a disappointment, I must say, and it was kind of a hard time in our marriage. But <laughs> at the time that um, he was running, and um, actually, when we were running with the Carters, against the Carters, and they were running against us, I had suggested then that it would be just advisable that we have a woman run for vice president. But I was kind of vetoed again. So now I, I think it's time again, and we still don't have a woman for vice president. <laughs> but hopefully someday we will. Uh, the hardest part for me when we were serving in the White House was having the children not quite as close to us as they were when we were just living as um, in our own home in Virginia, and particularly having a young daughter and a young son who were 18 and 19 years old, I felt very responsible for them. And that bothered me a great deal because traveling and steak dinners took me away from that family. And um, it was kind of hard. That was, that, was the most, that was the biggest drawback, other than the biggest drawback for me was when, of course, two women attempted to shoot my husband. So those attempts on his life gave me a very scary feeling every time he left the White House. But it was a wonderful time, and we enjoyed it. We felt very, very privileged to serve, particularly in the bicentennial year. You're watching American History TV, where you're listening to Betty Ford in her own words. As a former First Lady, Mrs. Ford sometimes reflected in public about the journey that took her to the White House and the life she lived because of it. And when she took questions from an audience, they inevitably wanted to know about her current policy and political views, as well as past controversies. It's an understatement to make that Betty and I are overwhelmed. She is the one who... Um, always says the right words on such occasions. Since I clearly have seniority in the birthday book, I will save the last words for myself. Now that's a switch in our family. <laughs> Betty, uh, you go ahead and tell them how wonderful the first 45 years have been. <laughs> and I'll concentrate on the second 45. My dear wife, Betty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, dear husband. You know, in our 45 years of marriage, I have learned a few things about togetherness. And there are three things that I have found that are probably the most important. One golfer in the family is more than enough. <laughs> in a relationship, diplomacy 
is best served by having only one politician. And when it comes to events such as this, only one of you should make remarks. And I was always taught to respect my elders. <laughs> Occasionally, of course, I have been known to have an opinion or two on my own. But all joking aside, I want to tell you how truly wonderful these 45 years have been. Because... Jerry Ford has given me probably the most eventful and exciting and romantic time that any girl could ever hope to have. The poet who said, grow, along with, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be, must have had Jerry Ford in mind. And so it's congratulations, darling. And I wish you all the very best. And I thank you for taking me along on your ride. Betty Ford looked back on her time in the White House at an event at the Nixon Library in 1997. And as I think back about the years that were so politically active, I realized that the event that probably had the biggest impact on my life was the day my husband took the oath of office as president of the United States. Nothing can compare to that moment. I did write about it in my book, and I wrote about it as the saddest day of my life. President Nixon had resigned, and the Nixon first family, who we loved so dearly, were leaving the White House. It's a day I will never forget. But today has provided me an opportunity to reflect on our many years in Washington and all the wonderful times we experienced which led to the privilege of our serving in the White House. Before my husband and I ever started our journey to that wonderfully historic house, were, everything was quite different. Jerry's goal in Congress had always been to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. But a solid and continuing Democratic majority seemed to be distancing him from that goal. In 1973, Jerry, who had then been serving for nine years as minority leader, began talking about serving just one more term and then retiring. That sounded like the most wonderful idea to me. But as we began our planning, it never dawned on us that outside influences might rearrange our plans, and not just slightly. When President Nixon was considering his selection for a new vice president following Mr. Agnew's resignation, I was very aware that my husband's name was included on the list of 10 men who were rumored to be under consideration. I didn't give it any serious thought. I was sure that Jerry's position as the Republican leader was much too valuable to President Nixon for him to be a contender. So the Ford family, under my kind of direction and tutelage, we went about business as usual, and that is everybody but our daughter, Susan. Once the news was out about her, that her father's name had been uh, included on the list, she was totally convinced that he was going to be picked. We humored her 
by agreeing that, oh yes, your father is certainly the best man for the job, all the while being very sure she was wrong. In fact, we had some bets on it. President Nixon had announced that he would take, make a selection the evening of October 12th in the East Room of the White House. Both houses of Congress were to meet there at 8 o'clock to hear the announcement. We had the usual quiet family dinner planned, you know, so that Jerry could get through early and be in place in the White House with his colleagues at that appointed time. But during dinner, the phone rang. And it wasn't President Nixon. Just as Susan knew it would be. And the call came from the White House. But unfortunately, the call came in on our private child-proof line, which had no extensions. And by child-proof, I mean that it came with a kind of death threat to any child who dared to use it. (laughs) Under the circumstances... Susan naturally sprinted upstairs to the phone and called her father, and then things began to get really confused. President Nixon told Jerry he wanted to speak to both of us and asked my husband to have me please pick up the extension. That is the non-existent child-proof extension. (laughs) Attempting to remain cool and controlled, Jerry explained the problem and asked, he said to Dick, you know, well, he said to the president, please, can you call back giving him our other phone number? (laughs) And then he hung up. (laughs) He came back downstairs and said, you know, President Nixon is going to call back because he wants to also have you on the phone when he speaks to me. We waited what seemed an eternity To this day, I wonder what we would have done if the other phone hadn't run a few minutes later. I've often wondered what would have happened or how we would have handled it. Well, that call not only changed my life from being typical suburban wife of a member of Congress into the vice president wife's designate, vice president designate wife, but the call did it well. What, where was I? Dressed in slacks, cooking steaks in our backyard. And I, within a half hour, was supposed to be ready to be at the White House to appear on national television with my husband. (laughs) Well, guess what? I had nothing to wear. (laughs) With Susan's help. I went upstairs and and we went through my closet and I threw on a dress that I thought was probably suitable for television because it was a solid color and I knew that was better. At least I knew that much. But uh, the dress happened to be green, a not very suitable TV color. But I did make it to the White House in time to slip quietly into my chair next to Pat. Actually, it was half a chair with Pat because it seemed someone forgot that I was coming (laughs) when they set up the room and assigned the seats. So everybody had to slide over a little bit. I remember Julie and and, um, Tricia and their husbands were there. And in my excitement, you know, I hardly noticed. I was just so excited to be there. Then after weeks of endless investigations and hearings before the Senate and House committees, Jerry was finally confirmed as vice president.
This is Ford. I'm sure there'll be some questions from the audience. If you I'll would be happy to answer like. any I can. I'll try. Who would like to uh, begin? Mrs. Ford, I was wondering if you had any regrets uh, about the time that you had in the, the White House. I know that you wanted to do so many things, or is there something that you did? Well, um, I really had, I guess I had the regret of when my husband lost the election. That was my biggest regret. <laughs> but in some ways, as I look back, um, you know, I'm a fatalist. I believe things happen as they were meant to be. I have a, a strong faith in my higher power, whom I choose to call God, and those things. Um, probably the interview of 60 Minutes, which I did, and it focused on Susan and our daughter at that time, who was only 18, and Marley Saver came out of the blue from someplace, I don't know. I guess I, he thought I was a patsy or something, and, and um, said, well, you know, what are you going to do? No, something about what would you do if you found out Susan was having an affair? And I was just kind of flabbergasted. Here was my precious darling daughter who was only 18 years old, just 18. And I said, well, she, she really couldn't. I didn't even focus on the age. And he said, well, she's 18 years old. She's an adult. She could. And I guess I was supposed to say, well... I'd throw her out. I, I didn't. I said, I would certainly want to counsel with her and find out who it was, what their intentions were, and try and help her. And that kind of hit the headlines because that was not a question that hadn't been addressed as far as a public figure in the White House before. So that was, it was hard on Susan. That was the thing that was so difficult because all her friends kind of immediately took it up and, you know, made fun of it. And to this day, she still resents it. But, you know, life doesn't have a, always a bed of roses. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Ford, um, I have a question. I'm a judge from the Orange County Superior Court, and I started the drug court with another judge we have here, Judge Winley Lindley. And I'd like to ask your question about drug court. Drug court treats nonviolent drug addicts who have an addiction who, instead of being incarcerated, are given an opportunity to complete a program. What are your thoughts on something like that for the public? Well, my feeling is that unless we have education and treatment for people, the drug problem is going to go on and on. And I certainly believe that treatment is much better than incarceration when it is appropriate. Uh, there are times when repeated offenses that are causing very damaging accidents and endangering people's lives um, is not, it's probably not appropriate because they've had that opportunity and it hasn't worked. So does that answer your question? Yes, I, I'm talking about nonviolent drug addicts. Yes. Who, who, for the first time, are incarcerated or first time have not committed any serious violent crimes. Well, there's there's a very good opportunity to treat this person and have them become uh, a good, solid citizen and turn their lives around. As we close our look at Betty Ford here on American History TV, let's hear from her on the kind of first lady she hoped to be 
from a 1974 press conference, not quite a month after her husband was sworn in as president. And then again in 1998, her reflections on whether she would have done anything differently. How would you like to be remembered? Or what? Well, I like to be remembered very, uh, in a very kind way. <laughs> Uh, also as a constructive wife of a president. I don't expect to uh, come anywhere near living up to those first ladies who have gone before me. They've all done a great job, and I admire them a great deal, and it's only my ambition to come close to it. Uh I guess, Mrs. Ford, we might as well start with you. If you had to do it all over again, is there anything that you would do differently as First Lady? Well, maybe I would perhaps have not been so outspoken and gotten in so much trouble. <laughs> but um, I don't think you can change that because that's the kind of person I am, uh, rather frank and upfront. And I think some of the things worked out for the benefit of me and for the benefit of other women. For instance, breast cancer, which was never talked about, and we did go ahead and bring that forefront. So I... I think I'd do it all the same. Thank you for joining us on American History TV for this special look at Betty Ford in her own words. Next week, Rosalind Carter, a longtime advocate for the mentally ill and a forthright political partner to her husband, Jimmy Carter. American History TV's First Lady series is also available as a podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts.